from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Friday, the 3rd of November. We've got a fantastic show for you today and amazing stuff coming up all next week as well. Today, we're going to meet a medical entrepreneur who is fighting sepsis. It's an amazing story and the things he's doing to make it so we don't get sicker when we go to the hospital. And then the real Jason Criddle, he is running an AI investment firm. Very cool. And we get some great AI tips in this interview, so you will enjoy it. But we got a busy show. We need to go ahead and get started, so we are going to do that. My first guest today is amazing. His name is Greg Bullington. He is the CEO and co-founder of Magnolia Medical Technologies. There is a disease out there, you may have heard of it, called sepsis. It's when something in our blood is bad. We will get it explained. But it is the number one cause of death in hospital readmissions. Greg has raised $125 million to grow and build Magnolia. Prior to this, Greg had a really interesting career in healthcare technology, but I think he came at it more as a consultant, you know, a Deloitte and Touche type guy. And therefore I will ask him where all this medical expertise came, especially because he is the first named inventor on, this is really impressive, over a hundred patents. He has 50 more pending. Greg, I was impressed that I have one patent and you beat me by 150. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I hope you're impressed. Doing well. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's start there. I mean, you you started off at Deloitte too, right? You are the you know the stereotypical consultant. How did you end up on the healthcare path? Yeah, I um, I did uh, do work on the uh, audit and assurance side at Deloitte uh, early on in my professional career, and then I pivoted over to the strategy consulting uh, world and the uh, firm that I work for had some unique opportunities in the. Uh, novel cancer therapy space. And so spent uh, the first several years of my career uh, focused on totally new treatment modalities for cancer and uh, uh, concurrently had quite a bit of experience working with the big Blue Cross Blue Shield insurers. So had kind of a unique perspective on how to build new markets in the healthcare space and how to introduce new technologies that represent paradigm shifts in terms of how we diagnose and treat patients. And a hundred patents, where'd you gain the technical skill to come up with that many technology ideas? I mean, that's pretty impressive. So before founding Magnolia, uh, I co-founded a software company with a group of software engineers that had invented a new uh, methodology in terms of optimizing the performance of hard drives, uh, particularly relevant in a data center environment where hard drives 
consume a lot of energy, generate a lot of heat, which is a, a significant variable expense for the owners and operators of data centers. So we built a patent portfolio around that novel technology and uh, ultimately sold that to SanDisk. So I had a lot of understanding and appreciation for the importance of intellectual property. And when we took the steps forward to design uh, the first, what's called an initial specimen diversion device, which was targeted at uh, dramatically reducing the incidence of false positive sepsis blood test results, uh, we really had a, a keen eye to understanding as an early stage company that we needed to do uh, an exhaustive job of making sure we could protect our intellectual property. Uh, that's really the, the foundational element really for any early stage company, particularly in the medical device space. Uh, and so we've uh, had fantastic engineers. We've had a lot of creative minds around the table. And uh, although I don't have a, a technical engineering degree by background, uh, I've spent a lot of time in the clinical environment and had many observations and creative thoughts about how we could solve problems at scale by designing out the human factors that cause variability in diagnostic testing, particularly in the hospital environment. And that has led to uh, the creation of uh, hundreds and hundreds of concepts of devices, as well as integrated diagnostic technologies to solve these big problems. Cool. Well, well done. What is sepsis? Explain it for us medical scaredy cats. <laughs> so That's sepsis, or term, by the way, there, there you go. Uh, so sepsis is a, a bloodstream uh, infection. And really what happens is uh, the, the toxins in your blood associated with bacteria, fungus, or yeast that gets into your bloodstream uh, create an inflammatory reaction and ultimately cause uh, organ shut down an organ failure and uh, that leads to uh, mortality for a very significant number of patients each and every year. Uh, it is the number one leading cause of death costs and readmissions in hospitals nationwide. Uh, yet the blood test that is used to diagnose sepsis in an average hospital is wrong 40% of the time. So we have 40 out of 100 patients that have been positively uh, identified via the blood test as having uh, a bacteria, yeast, or fungal infection in their blood, and they're most often treated as if that's a real infection, when in fact, uh, the vast majority uh, of those cases where there is a, a contaminant uh, and leading to that false positive result are preventable. And, I mean, you get sepsis from being in the hospital. Is that right, or is that just my bias? perception? Uh, certainly that, that is uh, not uncommon, particularly for patients that are immunocompromised and may be in the hospital for another reason. So a patient maybe that had a bone marrow transplant and is in the uh, ICU for some extended period of time. So there, there certainly is what they call hospital onset bacteremia, which is uh, you know garnering that infection in a hospital environment. Uh, but the, the majority of patients uh, will have uh, typically some other comorbidity or other issue uh, that brings them to the hospital. And um, oftentimes uh, for those patients um, with other health maladies, the uh, the risk of a, a concurrent infection is quite high. Yeah. I've been in the hospital for a while 
and this has been a word that they've been tossing around around me, that 40% inaccurate test in hospitals is pretty scary, though. That means half of the time, Greg. 40% is what I call half. And so that's not very good odds. You know, so, okay, let's talk the solution now. And so how is Magnolia Medical Technologies helping? What do you do to make this go away now? So uh, I co-founded the company with the chief of pathology at one of the University of Washington hospitals in Seattle. And Dr. Patton had spent 40 plus years of his career uh, really focused on and volunteering substantial amounts of time to improve quality and improve patient safety uh, through diagnostic accuracy initiatives and making sure that laboratories are following uh, best practices in terms of, of quality to ensure that patients weren't erroneously misdiagnosed. Uh, over the course of time, he participated in many autopsies where he ultimately concluded that the patient uh, died because of a complication associated with antibiotic therapy. And when he would go back to do the, the chart review to understand why that patient was on antibiotics, uh, most frequently it was the phone call from the lab that was indicating there was a positive blood culture result that indicated or was the justification for uh, adding, increasing, or sustaining antibiotic therapy. So he had noticed over the course of time a consistent presence of skin cells in bone marrow biopsies and came to the conclusion that while it is possible to disinfect skin, it is not possible to sterilize skin, and there are bacteria that can remain viable, and there are a lot of uh, variable elements of the process that's used to clean skin and maintain an aseptic environment when you're trying to collect blood. And so that was his core foundational uh, novel conception, and uh, we spent several years uh, with a manual process to prove out that hypothesis, and then we took the next step to see how much better uh, an enclosed system sterile mechanical device could perform. And we know now, based upon over 20 large-scale clinical trials, that our novel device technology delivers 10 times better performance on average than our manual process that we use to really vet and, and prove out the foundational technology. And so how will this end up in hospitals making me better? So we are uh, in a, an exciting phase of continued growth and development. Uh, we're coming up on 500 hospital and hospital system customers nationally that have adopted our technology uh, as the standard of care. We've also had the opportunity to work closely with uh, the various government agencies that are focused on patient safety and quality. So the CDC, uh, the National Quality Forum, Medicare or CMS, and we have diligently provided all of the scientific evidence that we have generated proving that these false positive sepsis test results do represent a preventable error. So uh, for you over the course of time, hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, this is a, a new standard of care to minimize the uh, existence of these false positive results and uh, we expect to see continued very rapid growth and deployment of our technology to help as many patients as quickly as we can, which is our fundamental core mission. All right. Well, well done, Greg. I mean, I love it. And uh, anything that's going to make 
me have a safer visit. Uh, I appreciate. I stayed one time for 93 days in the hospital and uh, had some surgery, of course, and came home and my brother was driving me around and I looked, he said, don't look down. And of course, what do you do? Uh, you look down and my stomach where the incision was, was popping like like a red stain on your shirt all of a sudden. And then like another red circle of blood. It was really like a, you know, I don't know, gross scene. And so, uh, that was from a hospital infection. And so I can relate to this. This is personal for me. Talk uh, unfortunately, that's, that's all too common. That happens very frequently. And uh, I don't think it's typically a function of uh, any malicious intent, but there are many well-known opportunities to really improve patient safety and prevent those types of outcomes. And that really is our focus as an organization is doing everything we can to help ensure appropriate and accurate diagnoses that lead to appropriate and accurate treatment decisions and getting patients that shouldn't be in the hospital out of the hospital as quickly as we can. Uh, that really is the, the core of what we focus on day in and day out. Again, thank you for doing this. Greg, talk to us about the financial side of this $125 million raised. That sounds like an awful lot, but I know enough about the medical industry to know that it's sort of average. Uh, it's not a big raise in the middle medical industry. Uh, where did all that money go? I mean, y'all go to Vegas every weekend or, uh, for us serious entrepreneurs, you know, who, you know, a million dollar company is a big deal. 125 million. We ask seriously, uh, what do you need all the money for? Building a new market, particularly in the medical device space and changing a standard of care in terms of how hospitals uh, practice uh, any particular procedure. And, you know, the blood culture procedure is one that's been around for 100 years uh, and used in the diagnosis of infection. Uh, making that change is a real challenge. I was uh, joking uh, earlier this week with um, a colleague about uh, a statement that Dr. Patton, my co-founder, had made to me early on which was from the time that you have very legitimate proof and scientific evidence and data about the ability to dramatically improve a standard of care in medicine, that the typical time frame to implement that standard of care at scale is 17 years. And to me, that seemed crazy, particularly when you have enormous bodies of evidence, as we do, that that would take that amount of time but what you find in healthcare is that nobody wants to be first. Fortunately, nobody wants to be last. But well, you going five hundred already, you said right. That's true. I was uh, paying almost. attention. <laughs> I appreciate that. So it's uh, it, it is a long journey. Uh, involves uh, a lot of effort. A lot of how many employees education. do you have? Uh, just under a hundred. Wow. I mean, that takes, and those people make serious money, right? Those aren't people making 30,000, right? To work at a blood company, you probably have to have a degree or something. We have a lot of highly experienced, very talented members of our team. Absolutely. I, I hate to bring this up, but I feel like I have to. Has your business been at all helped or hurt by 
the Elizabeth silliness? <laughs> uh, we, we've uh, certainly heard that question. I, over I know. The course I, of time. It's such an obvious question. You're right there with Elizabeth Holmes. You know, so we've taken a slightly different approach, which is we believe in scientific evidence. We believe in third-party, independent, peer-reviewed uh, medical literature. Uh, we believe in fact-based decision-making and doing things the right way. And that was the root and the foundation of our company with Dr. Patton uh, having conceived of the solution to this problem uh, early in his career. And then really uh, having committed uh, four or five years in the early stages to gathering an enormous amount of data from tens of thousands of patients to prove the efficacy profile and the consistency and sustainability uh, of the impact of our technology. And so uh, I, I think there are uh, many differences between the way we've approached the market and how uh, Ms. Holmes and company did. And I think that's reflected in our results. And as someone who knows blood, how ridiculous was her claim? You know, for example, the, uh, there was a Stanford professor that she approached for advice early on who said, this is clearly patently stupid what you're talking about here. You're completely off the grid, you know, of sanity. And I don't know. Uh, Oh, the hell with her. Let's not talk about her anymore. I'm glad she's in prison, to be honest. So what then are your ultimate goals? Uh, is this a IPO and move on? What is, what's your goal, uh, for the business and then personally, Greg? Yeah, we want to solve the problem of sepsis misdiagnosis for the world. And there are several legs to that stool in terms of preventing misdiagnosis. And so uh, our current commercial uh, product line represents the uh, only portfolio of products. So it's uh, not just um, one. We have uh, uh, our Stereopath portfolio as well as our micro portfolio that uh, is cleared by the FDA for the reduction of blood culture contamination. So that's the, the first leg of the stool. We've got several others under development. And so continuing to advance the standard of care, continuing to push as hard as we can to ensure that every patient that enters a hospital has access to our technology uh, really is what fuels our team and our mission and motivation each and every day. And that's, uh, that's the, the mission that we're after. We call it our mission to zero. And that is really the foundation of strategically how we're continuing to grow and drive our company forward. Okay. Now give me a business answer to the question. What is your business goals? Sure. It's to grow effectively as quickly as we can, which means the more patients we help, uh, the more access to resources we have to invest in our product development and our technology development platforms to increase the footprint of our commercial focus from the U.S., which it currently is, to the other major international markets where we have intellectual property protection, uh, and you know, doing that in the, the fastest manner that we're able. And again, uh, the, the faster we can help more patients, the, the more 
opportunity we have to proliferate our technology and uh, flex the muscles of our, our development team. So when you tell me that, what was it? 17 years is the average. I, the first thing that jumps to my mind is the FDA, uh, give them a grade or is that, do you blame the FDA on for taking 17 years? I know you can't say too much because this is recorded and you don't want them to hear it, but it kind of ticks me off, Greg, that it takes so long to get stuff out. And then I hear stories about in Europe, the same drug has already been approved, et cetera. I'm sure you've heard stories like that. Um, I don't know. I give the FDA a kind of low grade. I think personally, what do you think? Uh, our interactions with FDA have actually been quite positive over time. Uh, I, we don't play obviously on the therapeutic side. So some of the, um, you know, drug issues that you noted are separate from the uh, groups within FDA that regulate medical devices and uh, medical technologies. So uh, I don't think that the, the time frame, that super prolonged time frame to change a standard of care uh, is attributable to FDA and, and regulatory considerations. It's really more about inertia and it is very difficult regardless of the uh, volume of data and the evidence and proof that you have around the effect and impact of a new technology. Healthcare in general just does not react quickly to um, anything that's new or different. And so uh, it's really, in my experience, not a, a regulatory or FDA challenge. It's a, a market and uh, inertia challenge. Okay. Well, I'm glad. I, I, I guess I'm glad to know that the government agency is working well then. Uh, it's then who do we blame in a hospital then? Is it the director of purchasing or is, you know, do doctors fight against this? Who would be on the other side? It seems like there's no other side to this argument. It seems like such a no brainer that you would be, uh, liable if you don't do these sort of things. Yeah, I think hospitals in general are, are very complex organizations. The decision-making in hospitals is complex. Uh, budgets are a real challenge within hospitals and certainly in today's environment, uh, more so than you know, perhaps ever before. So it, to your point, in our case, if our product was free, every hospital should and would uh, be happy to adopt that. And so there are challenges with the way that our reimbursement system uh, is structured, in particular, the way that uh, inpatient hospital stays are reimbursed to hospitals. And that does cause, uh, I think, some slow dynamics in terms of adoption of new technologies that can improve outcomes. And that's why you have to work through the process with all the major societies and the government agencies and, and others that are involved in trying to promote new technologies that can improve outcomes uh, because it is challenging. It's difficult for hospitals to analyze uh, where cost savings are derived from and to measure that over time. So we have some software solutions uh, under development to address that uh, more specifically, but it's a, it is a multifactorial problem with a, a lot of decision makers involved. So there's not kind of a, a silver bullet solution to 
the issues that prevent adoption of new evidence-based technologies in the acute care hospital market. Greg, I used to be a judge for the Atlanta Business Person of the Year every year, and one of the guys who was consistently up there was very similar to you, but in the stomach space. He was creating all sorts of stomach you know, therapies and treatments and new products and stuff. But uh, you remind me of him and vice versa. The, the similarities just seem very uh, 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 prevalent. Uh, are you guys, you small, and I think he raised 125 million bucks too, if not that, 135. It was right in that ballpark. It seems like you, the guys who are raising 125 million, are the ones saving medicine, are the ones coming out with the new stuff. How much of it is you guys, the small 125 million guys, versus the big, big, big pharma? Who's saving me more, you or them? That's a good question. And I think it's unique based upon the type of technology that you're talking about and you know, devices versus therapeutics. Uh, there's quite a bit of difference in terms of the pathway that those uh, products ultimately take to market. But I think if you look at the track record of where a lot of the foundational innovation is coming from, certainly in the last uh, decade or several decades, uh, a significant portion of that innovation does come from the early stage innovators. And in fact, a lot of the large corporate strategics actually have a very intentional and almost stated policy that they're happy to buy things down the line that are de-risked and have gone through the painful processes of establishing a new standard of care. And that is, uh, you know, often the outcome is that the risk and the uh, activities that need to take place to build and shape and develop new markets uh, are best done by early stage companies that are filled with you know, entrepreneurially uh, minded and talented individuals and are supported by uh, venture capital and the ecosystem therein. So particularly on the med tech and device side, I would say it's, uh, it's stilted to the earlier stage companies. You know, there are nuances with that on the pharma and, and drug side. Yeah. Interesting. And I asked you about the business outcome and you didn't mention getting acquired, but now you just did. I have to think that that's, one of the most likely things to happen to you. So, well, we see a lot of runway uh, ahead of us. As I mentioned earlier, you know, with 400 plus uh, different device embodiments and diagnostic technologies that we've contemplated and uh, done work to advance, you know, we see very significant market opportunity uh, globally to deploy our technologies and deploy our core capabilities as an organization. So, you know, whether that comes in the form of a, a public offering to raise additional capital so that we can resource and grow more rapidly and develop uh, important additional new technologies to help support our mission, um, or uh, otherwise, you know, those are things we're always looking at, but we have uh, a long runway ahead of us and we've got a lot of patients to help, which is really where we spend our time and focus each and every day. Greg, how do we find out more? Follow online, learn more about Magnolia. Sure. Uh, our website is magnolia-medical.com and quite a bit of uh, robust information there. And uh, if anyone has questions or topics or things that they'd like to discuss, uh, easy to find me on LinkedIn as well. 
Fantastic. Greg, thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's an amazing story. You've done a great job and thank you for taking care of us all. Thanks for the time. Appreciate the opportunity. And we'll be right back. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another great entrepreneur. Please welcome Jason Criddle to the show. He is all sorts of things, a weight loss expert, a best-selling author, a strong man and endurance competitor. He is also very active in insurance and investments, has three investment companies called Smarter Commerce, Smarter Holdings, and Smarter Marketing. And Smarter is spelled interestingly, S-M-A-R-T-R with no E there. He is contributed or been involved with about $2 billion worth of sold products and services and has a show of his own. Can't wait to learn more. Jason, welcome. How are you doing? Thanks, man. That was pretty cool intro. Like you took all the information and made it your own. That was awesome. I will follow you around and introduce you like that every time you go into a new room. <laughs> and because I want to personalize the service, like, you know, when you go into the bedroom at night and I'll say, and world-renowned lover, Jason Crickle is in the bed tonight. Right. And then like uh, the pigeons fly or doves fly yes. through the room like a, like a John Woo intro, man. It would be right. really awesome. They will be pooing rose petals. <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's awesome. What does your wife say that you do when she has to tell her friends? Uh, she probably says that I just sit at home and play with the kids all day and get nothing accomplished. I would imagine that's what she says. <laughs> I bet she's nicer than that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think she tells everybody that I'm like a superhero in actuality. Um, and, you know, I feel blessed that I'm able to stay at home with the kids most of the time. It took a lot of years to get to the point to where I could work from a cell phone. And, uh, you know, so she's still in bank. She's been in banking for like 17 years, but the hope is that she's at some point going to retire from banking and come work with me full time. Well, you can make that happen whenever you want, I think. So what are the buckets of income now? Tell us, walk us through the different things that you make money with and uh, explain how give us a rundown of the buckets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it a little bit before the show. Uh, I have a little bit of revenue that still comes in from books. I learned a long time ago that, uh, books were a wonderful asset. And so even though I focus more on digital content now, I do still have uh, some paperback and some hardback books that are out there on, on Amazon still. And every once in a while I go on a radio show and somebody buys a book that's like five or 10 years old. So they still work. Um, and then I actively run smarter, uh, smarter holdings is our investment firm and smarter commerce and smarter marketing are two proprietary technologies that we run alongside a few other companies that are inside our portfolio. So, most of what I do nowadays uh, revolves around apps, websites, and then uh, here at home, not only do I homeschool my daughter and I spend time with my two-year-old son, but I spend a lot of time working on 
cars. Uh, I have a 71 Cutlass Supreme that I've been building for a year. I like to paint motorcycles and cars. So I'm part of a couple of different car clubs and we get together and we turn wrenches and we fix body work together and we all kind of have a hobby out of it. Excellent. I have a Toyota Highlander that will be showing up at your garage. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll paste a list of things that need to be done on the body. Uh, you can just fix that for me. All right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I got you, man. I got you. Excellent. Um, but that still doesn't really answer the question very well. Where does the bulk, I mean, where does thousands and thousands of dollars come from? You don't make thousands and thousands of dollars off of book residuals. Oh, no, no. Book residuals and not painting. No, I take a stipend from my investment firm, but most of the money sits inside companies. Uh, we roll over projects every once in a while. Whenever we do have an exit, we take properties and we just, or we take profits and we just buy other companies. So right now we're focused a lot on AI um, and uh, not only focus on AI, but plugins for websites and a lot of these um, good pieces of software that are out there, which goes to show or comes back to a philosophy that I have, which is only spend money on things that make money. And so anytime you know, my wife or I, uh, my, any company that I run, anytime we have any level of income come in, not only if you want to take advantage of the tax breaks by not taking, you know, paying a bunch of taxes on income, but always looking for new investment opportunities. Uh, right now we're focusing a little bit more on real estate to take advantage of the losses from K ones. And so, um, so yeah, brother, I mean, like it's, it, to me, I guess in the last four or five years, I've really been focused on, I guess it was about 2018 when I stepped away from investing and I stopped focusing on exits and I stopped focusing on returns and I started focusing on family and, and income comes along with it. And so I believe that if you're focused on community and, and having an impact to those around you and having an impact as a a small business thinking locally and having a global infrastructure that you can really build something worthwhile. And so that's what I've really been trying to focus on the last four or five years, man. It's just longevity. And what's your take on AI? How, uh, how is it impacting you and making your life easier? And you say you're actively investing there. How do you choose? What do you look for? How do they, I mean, do people call you and say, Hey, I have an AI. Are you going out and looking for investments? Uh, well, several questions there. Yeah. Yeah. The cool thing is, is we've been in the game long enough. Uh, Jason Crudel and associates, we have active landing pages that are out online. People are going online and they're looking for expansion capital. They're looking for investments. We're in all kinds of Facebook groups. And so, and then we have a ton of PR online. So we, we get a lot of, uh, a lot of deal flow. And that's one of the great things about us. We don't really have to look for things. Um, but right now, uh, one of the biggest focuses is on media. And one of the things about uh, generative AI is, is there's so much of this technology that's available inside people's GitHubs. A lot of it's open source. And so it's really about who can get to the market with not just a product, but building up a customer base and actually utilizing social media to take advantage of 
whatever tools they're using. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I've always been fascinated or that I'm fascinated with right now is the use of video editing technology, how we're, we used to pay so much money to, uh, uh, to video editors and to professionals, thousands and thousands of dollars to cut our commercials. And now we can just take like an hour long interview and we can put it inside uh, one of our AI models. And then we can get 250 little short videos that are not only are they videos, but they're based upon relevant keyword topics that are being searched for in Google in real time. And all these metrics are being put with your videos before they're available to go online, providing you with information that no video editor has ever been able to provide you with. And so um, these are tools that are available to people for $20 a month, $100 a month. And so a lot of companies that do come to us, they have a product and they've gotten a hundred customers or they've gotten a thousand customers. And we try to position them in a place where they can pick up more customers. And that's always the end goal. What video AI do you recommend? I know Dally for pictures. Is there a, a outstored, a outstanding video AI package out there? The one that I'm really liking right now that I get zero affiliate commissions or anything from at all is called Got Munch. It's either called Get Munch or Got Munch. I'm not exactly sure, but if somebody Googles it, they're going to find it. Um, I like it. Uh, people like it because they have a free trial. Um, you can go in there and load in like an hour long video and it'll spit out 20 or 30 videos. But like I said, the thing that's really cool about it that I love the most is just the metrics that you get. Like it'll not only will it find these stopping and starting points inside our conversation, uh, it'll edit those out and then it'll take those pieces of that conversation based off of relevant information that's trending online. It'll tell you parts of your conversation. If your conversation is popular, if your conversation is trending, if part of your conversation is not really going to get any kind of attention, and it'll also tell you exactly where you can post it to get the, you know, at, to get the most uh, feedback from what you're posting. And so it's just amazing that, like I said, uh, a dozen years ago, whenever I got into this game, people were raising millions of dollars to build an app. And now the barrier to entry is so low. But because of AI, it's giving small businesses the ability to have access to tools that would otherwise cost a company thousands and thousands of dollars. And so as an investment firm, we're just looking for companies that have the ability to penetrate the market with a, a little tool. And if they can scale it to getting a couple thousand customers a month for whatever price point, then we're more than happy to help them do that. I Googled it and it's get munch. M U C H and, uh, yeah, it looks, it looks, it's amazing. very cool. Yeah. Throw a video in there and you're going to have a blast. The amount of information that you get from that one video is incredible. I can't wait to play with that. That sounds fun. Before we came online, Jason, you and I were talking about the life of an entrepreneur and you mentioned that it's, uh, the movies don't do it justice that somehow the perception is not always the reality. What is your reality? 
look like of being an entrepreneur? It's super easy and only about an hour a week, right? <laughs> Man, you got jokes all day. It's awesome. <laughs> the reality, one of the hard realities of being an entrepreneur is there's a lot of time where there's nothing going on. And so like whenever I wrote my first book, I thought I was going to be a billionaire. And whenever I launched my first app, I thought I was going to be a millionaire. When I put my first website online, I thought I was going to be a million. And the reason why I think these things is because we've been told that this is what happens. Like we've been, we've been shown through TV, through TV shows that if we come up with an idea, we're literally going to have investors fighting to write us checks for that idea we've been told that if we build if we build it they will come that all we have to do is build a website or start a podcast and all of a sudden money starts flowing in but that's not what really happens what really happens is you have to build yourself you have to build a community and the beautiful thing about building yourself like through leadership training or through uh, starting a program at your church or a nonprofit for a cause that you care about is you ultimately become a better person. You build character traits that could run a company. And I think that that's one of the things that people miss out on whenever they're surrounded by information. But there, but they don't have the desire to learn something. We live in an age where someone feels like they can watch YouTube and then all of a sudden they're a professional and they're missing out on all those years of failure and making mistakes. And that's what makes us a professional in something. And so I would just tell people, or I spend a lot more time telling people now, like stop chasing that million dollar thing and start focusing on things that you can help out in your community because someone can make a very substantial living running a nonprofit organization. You know, it's just that they're thinking that building this million dollar thing that's glorified on TV and social media is what they're supposed to be doing. And so if they're not doing that, they're not feeling productive. And that's the thing that sucks about being an entrepreneur is you're going to have a lot of time where you absolutely can't be productive, where there's almost nothing that you can do, where you don't have working capital coming in. You don't have a nest egg sitting there. You don't have a job that's paying you an exuberant amount of money to spend on your thing. So having realistic expectations, like I'm going to launch my first website and I'm going to write my first book. And it could be 10 years before I ever see my first million dollars. That is great advice and a hard lesson to learn. Uh, what did you make your first big score financially on? Tell us that story. My first big score was whenever I, uh, I was just an, a business owner before I ever became big in entrepreneurship and or big in investments and big in scalability. And this is something that I even talking about the community, uh, building something in the community. I used to have a, a six figure landscaping company. And so I started mowing lawns when I was a kid. I was that kid. Uh, by the time I was 12 or 13, I had a couple of employees that had a truck and we were doing lawns in our entire neighborhood. And so I did, I mowed lawns and planted flower beds and picked weeds all throughout my teenage years, all throughout school. 
And then whenever I was about 17 or 18, I met a cop uh, who had a swimming pool company and I started working with him part time. And I did that for like five years. And then I went out and I bought a truck and I started my own, my own business. And I still remember the day that we got big. And that's where like my, the other part of my, uh, my idea of success comes in is, is faith and belief in something bigger. Um, I still remember the day we picked up one of our biggest contracts that, that put us at the six figure mark. Uh, I had an opportunity to buy two trucks to get out from underneath the debt that I had been rolling into this one truck that I had. And I'm sitting at home and I'm like, I can't possibly afford two trucks. I can't buy two trucks. It makes no sense to have two trucks. And something kept tugging at me and telling me just to get a second truck. I had no employees. I had no need for a second truck, but I bought the second truck. And the very next day, an employee showed up. And like that very same week, we got this huge contract, this huge five-figure a month contract. That was just, it was something unbelievable. And so in this investment entrepreneur world of, of building apps and building websites and AI this and everything, people believe that you need a million dollars to like start something. Oh, I got to go waste years like trying to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. And if you want to start a landscaping company, you literally get a lawnmower and you knock on doors and that's, that's how the business is run. And you go from there. And we not only did we take over neighborhoods, but I mean, we were statewide. We also had accounts in Oklahoma. We had accounts in Louisiana and my point is, even today, especially today, we are like living in a collapsing world where everybody is just like so focused on technology and their cell phones and their TVs that nobody wants to do real grunt work anymore. And so now this is like the perfect time for someone to start a cleaning company or to go get a lawnmower and put it in the back of their truck and start knocking on doors in their neighborhood. Like let's, you know, if, if you really want to use an app or really want to use a website, find a piece of technology that can help you build that local thing. But like right now we're in a time where an extra hundred dollars or an extra $500 a month can really make a difference in people's lives. And they have all the technology and all the information available to where they don't have to struggle to get that extra money anymore. Like start a service company, start something in your community. That's where the real money is. It's not online. But do you market that online? Do you take your American cleaning company and is it got a huge online social media presence and stuff? How do you grow it? Yeah. You know, it's funny because you, I saw the, your, in your questionnaire and you're talking about like one of the best guerrilla marketing tactics or like one of the best bootstrapping tactics, everything that we do, even our best proprietary technology through smarter marketing is based off of face-to-face -face interaction. Sure. It's an app that allows you to process a transaction easier and get an affiliate sale and blah, blah, blah. But it's based off of having a human conversation with people. And regardless of how much time we do spend online, most of the conversations that we still have today are just with people in person. 
And so the, the biggest hack that I could tell any business right now, if they have a cleaning company, a landscaping company, they're trying to get a new app online. They have an AI, uh, an AI model, like tool that they're trying to launch. It doesn't matter. Go get like a thousand dollars of t-shirts and leave your house and walk into a public area and make a scene, give away product that leads people back to your website or back to your page. And it will pay for itself tenfold. I promise you, everybody's looking for the magic internet button. We do not market anything online. Oh, there are companies that we have in our portfolio that use social media, but I haven't used social media in eight or nine years, but I still stay relevant doing PR and I stay relevant helping companies. And so I, I'm just a very big believer, brother, in, in going and shaking somebody's hand and giving them a gift, giving them something that leads them back to you, giving them something that shows them that you want their business. Why do you homeschool? Well, it started way, way back whenever my little girl was being abused by her mother and uh, I got custody of her. She had a lot of anxiety issues whenever she was growing up. And so, uh, it just, this is a bit more personal than I yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, 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 yeah. A little bit more personal, but I mean, it just, it just led down a road that just always worked, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 that's definitely how it started. It, and it's been a blessing ever since, man. Uh, and my daughter's and, uh, she's in girl scout. She's an active member in church community. She has her own book. She has a podcast reading children's books. She put a pause on it about a year ago, but she's read like 1100 episodes on that thing. It's crazy, man. I'm really proud of her. That is impressive. Very cool. Uh, I, you know, I try to be a good dad. And during the summer, we try to do the workbooks and stuff. And I give the kids 10 pages to do or something. And I look at the book and, you know, I, I see it kind of do the math in my head. There's 30 hours of work in this book and this is third grade math. Like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, we could really teach third grade math in a week. Yeah, that's true. And then I think about, you know, my kids going off to school and the number of hours that must be wasted to make those 30 hours spread out over nine months, right. you know? Right. It seems to me that if I were homeschooling, and I hate to be so presumptuous and uh, egotistical, though, Jason, it seems if a smart person were homeschooling, you could get through Shakespeare by 10. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of wasted time built in. What, what, what's the reality? You're, you're exactly right. And this is coming from a guy that used to skip school to go to the library because I thought that school was teaching us too slow. And so I had the same philosophy with my daughter. My whole, my whole, my whole thing was, is if my daughter can communicate, use money and has practical knowledge of the world, then that's going to help her. And so, so even though she, she has her online curriculum that she does and she does have some books and she also has a teacher that uh, she's had two teachers in her life. And one of them has been with us for about four years now, but 
we even even still it's it's all about practical learning like going to a museum uh starting uh, starting this business class within her girl scout troop where uh all the different girls came up with like a different craft that they would do and they've been making a business out of it year after year and they've been expanding on their business like these are things that really matter to me. And even though my daughter does know what an Erlenmeyer flask and a Bunsen burner is and all this stuff. And like, to me, whenever I look at the mainstream curriculum that kids are taught, it's just this hundred year old system that was designed years and years ago to make employees for factories and for jobs that don't really exist anymore and so when you look at the things that people that kids are the things that are being shoved down their throats there's just so much more that can be brought out of a kid if you give them an opportunity to grow and learn on their own rather than trying to force I don't know, repetitive, uh, repetitive, memorized, you know, like you were talking about, like just an unnecessary 30 hours of this particular curriculum spread out over the course of six weeks, just so we can put on a chalkboard or some, you know, spreadsheet that these kids showed up to school. It doesn't make any sense. My daughter had this like uh, goal that she wanted to graduate high school um, by the time she was like 13 or 14. And, you know, like right now she's um, she does ninth, 10th and 11th grade curriculum. It just depends on where she is in that particular in that particular course. But she will definitely graduate high school earlier than kids that are going to school. So. Wow. Very interesting. Jason, we're out of time. How do we find out more? Follow online, get in touch with you, all that, please. Uh, people can look up Jason Criddle. Um, and then the show that I'm launching, it's called The Real Jason Criddle. Gathering content. Hopefully, by the time somebody hears this, there will be a whole bunch of good stuff out there for people to listen to. Fantastic. We will link to it. Thanks so much, and I hope you'll come back. All right. Thanks, buddy. We are out of time. Have a great day. Bye now. <laughs>